0: The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. left home for a jog down this Whatcom County Road the day after Thanksgiving 1989 and never returned. Days later, her body was found a few miles away in the Nooksack River. And when she didn't come back, I panicked. There was a massive hunt for her. (laughs) Everybody was out looking, and people would say to me, oh, you're so strong, oh yeah, right. You can't be strong through something like that. It just rips you to pieces. Given the brutal circumstances of her death, the loss suffered by her and her family and friends, And the lack of demonstrated remorse for over 30 years, I am prepared to issue a court sentence. This week, I'll be telling you the story of Mandy Stabick. But first, let's get our PNW town profile. Acme, Washington is a census-designated place in Whatcom County. It's less than 10 square miles in size, and the population at the 2010 census was 246. It is located in the South Fork Valley between the Cascade Mountains and Lake Whatcom. The area is known for its beautiful scenery and great camping spots. And now, on to our story. Mandy Stavick was born in 1971 to parents Mary and Glenn Stavick, and the first years of her life were spent in Palmer, Alaska, near Anchorage. She had an older brother named Brent, an older sister named Molly, and a younger brother named Lee. Her parents would go on to divorce in 1974 when she was around three years old. Her dad then remarried, giving her step-siblings. The following year, in 1975, Mandy's 17-year-old brother Brent was out bow hunting on Fort Richardson Army-based land. He had special permission to do so, and he was not trespassing, but his body was discovered with 17 gunshots to his head and his chest. It has never been made clear if he was accidentally shot by other hunters or if he was murdered. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't know a lot of hunters who shoot their prey 17 times, so I would lean towards murder. To this day, no one has been held responsible in Brent's killing. Mandy's mom, Mary, decided to move to Washington State and settled in the Acme, Washington area when Mandy was in the 7th grade. Then, in 1988, her stepbrother, Spencer, from her dad's remarriage, died at the age of 20 in a boating accident in Alaska. The following year, in 1989, Mandy would go on to graduate from Mount Baker High School She was an honor student who was in the band and was a star athlete in basketball, cross country, and track. She aspired to be an airline pilot, which led her to Central Washington University in Ellensburg in the fall of 1989. Her roommate was a Japanese exchange student named Yoko, and they worked to learn each other's languages. They became fast friends, and after completing her first quarter finals, she headed home to spend Thanksgiving break with her family in Acme, and she brought Yoko home with her. The day after Thanksgiving, Yoko and Mandy walked her usual running path, which was a five-mile trail along the Nooksack River. Mandy went for a jog later in the day on the same running path with her German shepherd named Kyra. Typically, Mandy's mom, Mary, would ride her bike alongside Mandy for her run, but on that day, they had family in town, so she decided to go alone. A few hours after she had left and had not returned, Mary got anxious and panic set in when Kyra, the dog, arrived home with her tail between her legs and silt from the river on her paws. Mandy's mom immediately called the police to file a missing persons report and the search began. The police believe that the dog may have been harmed, possibly even thrown in the river, as she had the classic German Shepherd traits of being loyal and protective and likely wouldn't have let Mandy go without a fight. Her brother had been at a friend's house just up the street from the Stavik home, and saw Mandy run by the neighbor's house on her way back home, so something went wrong very close to her house. Many neighbors came forward to say that they saw Mandy on her run, so they had a pretty good idea of her path that day. Law enforcement also hired a Native American tracker to look for signs in nature for where Mandy had been taken, as they assumed that she had been kidnapped. They were able to locate a spot where they believed something may have happened in the woods near the river, and they tried to take Kyra to see where she would go, but the dog was terrified and wouldn't leave the house. Sadly, Mandy's body was found three days later in the river. She was nude aside from her running shoes, and the autopsy showed that she had been sexually assaulted and likely had drowned in the river. There were scratches all over her legs, indicating that she had possibly escaped her attacker and ran through the thick blackberry bushes before being caught again. The theory after the autopsy became that someone kidnapped Mandy, sexually assaulted her, hit her over the head, which rendered her unconscious, and threw her in the river while she was still alive, as her autopsy stated the cause of death as drowning. When her body was recovered, the detective on the case had just returned from an FBI training about DNA. And although not much could be done at the time with DNA, he had just been trained on how to retain DNA evidence as it might be helpful down the road. Because of this training, he was able to recover a sample of male DNA, and authorities were also able to assume that Mandy had been raped. They were able to compare the sample to a local drifter who was seen in the area around the time Mandy went missing, and they were able to rule him out as well as Mandy's boyfriend, and around 30 other men in town. A memorial service was held for Mandy, and one of her greatest mentors, her basketball coach, gave the eulogy. There were around 900 people in attendance, which was about double the size of students attending the high school. The authorities had around 8,000 tips they looked into, as the small town came together trying to find Mandy's killer, but the years carried on without any answers. Her murder took place during the height of the Green River Killer's reign of terror, and the fact that she was found in a river made him a possible culprit. According to a 1990 Seattle Times article, 200 people had been looked into as suspects, but none had panned out, and the case went cold for many years to come. Until July of 2013. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. The Upper Left Corner merch store is open. Head on over to UpperLeftPodcast.com to check out the selection of shirts, tanks, crewnecks, and hoodies. My personal favorite is the tie-dye tee that my friend Sarah helped me design. Check out the new logo and see if you can spot the PNW Easter eggs and keep checking back for new items. I'm working on wine glasses, coffee mugs, and stickers. Thanks for your support. This episode is sponsored by Smile Brilliant. I am one of the 40 million Americans who grind their teeth at night. There can be many causes such as stress, anxiety, or an abnormal bite, and chronic teeth grinding can lead to worn enamel, tooth decay, sleeplessness, and expensive dental procedures. The best solution for teeth grinding is the custom fitted night guard. However, it's costly with the average dentist charging between two dollars and $300 per guard and you will grind through several a year. Using Smile Brilliant's lab direct process, you can get the same custom fitted night guards for as little as $45 per guard. Not only that, but as an Upper Left Corner listener, enjoy 30% off site-wide at smilebrilliant.com using code UPPERLEFT. That code is also good on their other amazing products, such as their whitening trays or electric toothbrushes. Head over to smilebrilliant.com today. Every year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. That's not even talking about the other causes of death related to substance and mental health, just those two. And these deaths are completely preventable. That is why Jay Schiffman, a public speaker and coach, has started the podcast, Choose Your Struggle. Jay interviews people with lived experience on topics of mental health, substance misuse, and recovery to help end the stigma and normalize the difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. There are massive system changes that need to happen, but until we can have honest conversations around these topics, these lives will continue to be lost. This is why Jay started the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He tells his story as a guy in long-term recovery who survived two suicide attempts and an overdose. He's taking a second chance at life and making it meaningful by using this podcast as a platform. With over 100 five-star ratings, the Choose Your Struggle podcast is for everyone, from those struggling with substance or mental health issues to the people who love them. Check out the Choose Your Struggle podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO-level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on demand, will give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. Until July of 2013, two moms who vaguely knew each other were chatting at a water park as they let their kids play. They had both attended Mount Baker High, and somehow the topic of Mandy Stavik came up. Both women said they knew who killed her, even though neither had ever shared their thoughts on this with anyone else. Both surprised each other when they said the same name. Tim Bass was a fellow graduate of Mount Baker High, along with the two women and Mandy, although he was a bit older than them. Both of these women had a story that had creeped them out to the point of thinking Tim Bass was capable of Mandy's murder. One of the women recalled a few months prior to Mandy's murder that she was around 15 when Tim was in his 20s, and she had an uncomfortable experience with him. They were in a group setting, and he was rubbing her legs and being aggressively flirtatious. She got a terrible gut feeling and got away from him. The other woman had her experience a few years later in 1991. She was home alone with her young son when she heard a knock at the door. When she answered, it was Tim Bass asking to use her phone to call his wife because he had been hunting all day. She let him in and led him to the phone, which he picked up, and she walked into the other room. While he was having a conversation, she could hear the beeping on the phone that happens when you reach a disconnected number. That would make my heart sink. Shortly after, he walked through the kitchen into the woman's bedroom and got super creepy with her. He said that he used to drive by her house all the time and that he was in love with her and that he wanted to make love to her. She asked him to leave, but he refused until she threatened to call the police. After sharing their stories that summer day at the water park, the women decided to call up another Mount Baker High grad, the detective on the case named Ken Gates. He took them seriously and reviewed the files to see if Tim Bass had ever been looked into before. Turns out he hadn't, even though he lived about two miles from Mandy's house right along her running path. It is believed he was originally overlooked because he came from a nice family and didn't have any prior run-ins with the law. And still, in the years since the murder, he had gotten married, had three children, and worked as a delivery truck driver for Fran's Bakery. Nonetheless, he was brought in for questioning, and off the bat, Tim denied knowing Mandy, and acted like he didn't remember her murder. I'm from a small town, and when something like a murder happens, you don't forget it. He eventually, quote-unquote, remembered, but claimed to know nothing about it. When asked for a saliva sample to compare to the DNA, he refused, citing that he had watched crime shows and watched too many people go to prison because they gave their DNA. So the detectives went a different route. They began surveilling Tim following him on his work route. But he was careful not to discard anything that could have his DNA on it and he always wore gloves, which was super strange. They also started interviewing the people around him, including his brother Tom, who said their childhood was normal but that when Tim was a teenager, there was an alarming change in his personality. He described him as a loner and said that social interactions did not come easy for his brother. The most concerning event was when Tim was late into his high school years and his girlfriend broke up with him. He got on the phone holding a pistol, threatening to shoot himself. He did fire the pistol in the air at one point, and from that night on, his brother noticed that he had a deep hate and disrespect for women. Tim went on to marry Young at the age of 22. In fact, it was six weeks after Mandy's murder, he married a fellow Mount Baker grad named Gina. During their 30-year marriage, it was noted that Tim was controlling and emotionally abusive towards her. According to Gina, in 2010, she had tried to leave by filing a restraining order and moving out. She had even filed divorce proceedings, and they had been separated for two months when Tim threatened to lie and say that she had done horrible things so that he could gain custody of the children. She felt forced to go back to him to be with her children. With Tim not cooperating any longer with detectives, they approached his boss at work to get any information she had about him. Kim Wagner told them that Tim was different and a little weird. He was flaky about showing up to work and he was quick to anger. She also experienced his low regard for women personally. He apparently never called her by her name, but always called her woman. But she had no idea what the authorities were looking at Tim for and she told them they would need to have a warrant before getting his work information. A few years later, in 2016, Kim was having a discussion with some family members, and it came up that Tim lived down the street from Mandy when she was murdered, and she put the pieces together that the investigators were looking at him for Mandy's murder. She approached the detective again and asked if they needed his DNA, because she would get it for them. An opportunity to which the detective replied that they couldn't ask her to do that, but if she happened to voluntarily drop it off, they could use it. But this wouldn't be as easy as it seemed. Like I said earlier, investigators had been telling him for months, and he never threw anything away in public, and it appeared he was taking his work trash home as well. Until three months into Kim's surveillance, Tim threw away a Coke can and a plastic cup in the trash can right in front of her. There were lots of people around, so she quickly grabbed the items and threw them in her desk drawer to hand over to police. On December 12, 2017, 28 years after the murder, the lab called with the DNA results. The male DNA found inside of Mandy Stavik was a match for Tim Bass. According to the Linden Tribune, the results returned a match with a statistical probability of 1 in 11 quadrillion, more than a million times the Earth's population. The investigators headed out to catch Tim at the end of his workday and started by asking if he had any type of relationship with Mandy, which he denied. He stated he had never even touched or kissed her. They then asked him how his DNA would be inside of her, at which point he got angry and wanted to know how they got his DNA. They placed the 50-year-old under arrest and then had the pleasure of informing Mandy's mom that the arrest had been made, and it just so happened to be Mary's 81st birthday. In the interrogation that followed the arrest, Tim changed his tune and said that he and Mandy were having an affair, and that is why they found his DNA. But he lawyered up and denied having any involvement in her murder. For the trial, the top prosecutor of Watcom County, Dave McEatron, came out of retirement for this one last case because it had affected him and his career for so many years. He wanted to be able to finish it. He had been the Watcom County Prosecutor for 44 years when he retired in 2018, but he came back for this trial in 2019 and still, in his mid-70s, works on Wednesdays to assist the current prosecutor. The prosecutor had DNA but was still nervous for the trial. First up to testify was Tim's boss, Kim, who had collected the DNA. She said she was scared to do it, but knew she had to. Some of the most damning witnesses were actually Tim's family members. His ex-wife, Gina, had filed for divorce after he was arrested, and he had claimed that he had had an affair with Mandy. She also revealed to the court that he had asked his own mother to help him frame his father for the murder. His dad had died about 10 years earlier. Then came his brother, Tom who said that Tim had asked him to tell the investigators that he had also slept with Mandy to make it appear as if she got around, and also recalled times when he asked his mother to make up an alibi for him, such as saying they were Christmas shopping at the time Mandy went missing. On the ninth day of trial, both sides made their final argument. The defense stuck with their story that Tim and Mandy were having a consensual affair The prosecutor pointed out how the timeline of the affair theory didn't add up since Mandy had been away at college all fall and had just arrived home days prior. Not only that, but everyone in Mandy's life scoffed at the idea that she would ever consider Tim romantically. Nearly 30 years after Mandy was murdered and after a five-hour deliberation, the jurors found Timothy Forrest Bass guilty of the charges of kidnapping, rape, and murder. He received the maximum sentence, which was 27 years in prison. The prosecutor could have gone for a charge with a life sentence, but they would have had to prove premeditation and they weren't sure they would be able to do that. Tim Bass will be eligible for parole in 2044. I watched the 48 hours on this case and Mandy's mom, Mary, broke my heart. She lost two of her four children and she never found answers to what happened to her son and no one was ever held responsible. And in Mandy's case, it took decades to get answers. Mary testified in court at 82 years old, and she spoke with 48 Hours about how tough that was and how she had dreaded reliving those days in the courtroom for a long time. She's an amazing and resilient woman. She was even able to speak at Mandy's memorial service in 1989, which takes way more strength than I could ever fathom. The Stavik family set up a scholarship fund in Mandy's name for students at Mount Baker High School, and you can find the link to donate to that scholarship on my website under the Support Victim Causes tab. Mandy's name lives on in her family through her sister Molly. She named her daughter Mandy. And that is the case of Mandy Stavik. This week's local wine that I paired with my true crime is Duck Pond Chardonnay from Great Oregon Wine Co. For over 25 years, Duck Pond Cellars has been crafting estate-grown natural wines in the Willamette Valley. The Chardonnay is harvested from nutrient-rich volcanic and sedimentary soils with notes of lemongrass and undertones of light-toasted French oak. I really liked this one. Cheers, and thanks for listening. Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at Upper Left Corner Pod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.